excited to officially have all four of you here joining me today. Um, Dr. James Borchers, who is with the U.S. Council for Athletes Health. We have Dr. Janelle Wells, who is a co-founder of Wells Quest, as well as an associate professor for the Vinick Sport and Entertainment Program at the University of South Florida, and Dr. Andrew McIntosh uh, with RISE. And then we also have, as you can see, Zoom user, which is Central Michigan University's athletics, athletic director, Amy Full and Amy. Thank you for joining us as well as everybody else, but I have to give you some extra kudos because of the, the technology issues we just faced. So happy to have everybody here. Happy to be Pleasure here, to thank be you. Here. Thanks, Taylor. Absolutely. All right, so uh, as hopefully you know, if you are if you are an attendee right now, you know that you're in the place where we're gonna be discussing education for retention with a focus on professional development for staff. Uh, we've gathered these, these four uh, experts in their field today to join us partly because three of them are content partners on our uh, newly announced professional development suite for staff. And then of course, Amy coming from the, the campus seat is able to provide us with that perspective of somebody who's sitting in that chair, right? Somebody who's leading athletic department staff and, and who does that on a regular basis. So I'm gonna go ahead and, and jump right in. We're a few minutes behind. Uh, and so we'll we'll just jump right into things here. But the first question that I wanna ask and, and kind of the first section that we'll focus on is mental health. So uh, Dr. Borchers, I'm going to kick things off with you. What are some of the biggest mental health issues that athletic staff members are facing today? Well, thanks, Taylor. And it's, it's nice to be here with the rest of the panelists uh, and appreciate uh, you having me. You know, we've talked about this a number of times, and I think that in the last uh, 24 to 30 months, you know, we've had uh, significant challenges throughout collegiate athletics but especially with staff and athletics staff, including coaches, administrators, uh, and other folks that work in collegiate athletics. I think that, you know, the one overarching statement that I want to make to start with is, is that mental health, and I prefer, as you know, mental wellness, is part of a holistic approach to, you know, self-care and self-wellness. And it doesn't really separate itself from our physical wellness, right? But it, it's something that we have to pay attention to and that we have to uh, take stock in. And I think the things that are facing athletic staff today um, are not dissimilar to what we've talked about in the past around student athletes, but I think the number one thing is burnout. And burnout usually comes um, from a couple of different avenues when we think about health. It comes from the inability to maintain a balance within oneself when it comes to self-care. And those are things that you know, crossover, um, whether that is, you know, appropriate sleep, um, ability to, you know, um, manage our work life with our home life, with our personal life, with our spiritual life, emotional life, those sorts of things uh, that we think about. But it's also um, uh, an issue, uh, specifically in athletics, of a culture where um, oftentimes stopping to think about how we take care of oneself is something that um, uh, isn't really discussed very much, right? It's a, it's a culture of type A personalities. It's a culture of very motivated individuals. It's a culture um, of excellence. Um, but we forget, I think, sometimes that excellence is hard to achieve if we're not maintaining our own um, ability to um, take care of ourselves in that process. And so what we've seen is a lack of resiliency, a lack of coping mechanisms, a lack of um, 
uh, awareness around uh, this until unfortunately it gets to be too late. And then once it's too late, um, we see some of the same issues that we've seen um, in other fields where people are either leaving the field or where people are um, uh, questioning, you know, their career choices. And so um, the challenge is real for athletic staff, for coaches, for administrators, because Clearly, as you and I have discussed, the people that student athletes look to the most for their own mental health and for their own modeling are those people that they're around the most. And they've said it's coaches and athletic administrators. And so being able to model that behavior is even more important in a time when we know student athletes are challenged with mental wellness issues more than ever before. I'm going to switch gears and, and go rogue a little bit here. I'm going to switch over to you, Amy. So being a, a leader, being in that head seat for an athletic department, what are some things, you know, that you've seen, what are some biggest, uh, some of the biggest challenges that, you know, whether it's your department specifically, or whether you want to go more broad for college athletics in general, what are some of the biggest issues that, that you're facing being in that seat? Yeah, I think Dr. Borsher just touched upon it. Um, and it kind of seemed to unfold before our eyes. I really rely on our experts. You know, we have uh, mental health professionals. I'm not that expert, but when I know our staff needs it, it's pulling them in. We did have a session with all our head coaches um, at the end of the year to kind of debrief on mental health issues for student athletes, best approaches. I even think that's changing. I think five years ago, it was kind of like it's a mental health issue. Get the student athlete to the mental health professional and kind of be hands off. Don't let them feel like you're pressuring, not pressuring, give them their space. And now we're learning. We have to kind of make sure they get to that mental health professional, but say, are you getting everything you need and, you know, approach it differently. So things are changing rapidly. And really what I try to do is pull in our professionals and listen to our staff. I had some staff early on um, about October of 2020, when I started at Central Michigan University say, you know, I know we're focused on the student athletes, but our staff needs help too. So sending out letters that the resources with the employee assistance program, all the places that different programs have benefits, making sure people know. And I think what that lets them know is it's okay. If you need the support and help, here's where it is. And we encourage you to use it. Um, so sometimes just listening to our staff and knowing what they need and then try to respond to those needs. And then I really rely strongly on our um, mental health professionals. And we've done a new partnership um, at Central Michigan with my Michigan, one of our local hospitals, and they're doing an assessment on our nutrition and mental health. And so they're kind of coming in, where are we, where do we need to go? Um, and we're starting with our student athletes, but I do think it's a good thing to also try to make sure we look at our staff and align. I've aligned with the university, but it couldn't help, it couldn't hurt to um, use every resource we have and continue to evaluate because I do think it is a moving landscape. Absolutely. I think you just uh, touched on something so important that staff obviously needed as well. That's why we're here today, right, is to not only talk about mental health, but several other things and professional development in general. In college athletics, we tend to be so focused on the student athlete and what the student athlete needs and, and you know, what can we do to help make their experience better. And that's something we should obviously continue to do. But if as a, a field and if as administrators in that field, we're going to be able to do that, we have to also be able to take care of ourselves, right? We hear the the saying often, you can't pour from an empty cup. And so I think that's that's a, a point that I definitely want to be sure that we're driving home today. Dr. Wells, uh, for you, from a from a leadership standpoint, from a consulting standpoint, and really just from your experiences, can you talk a little bit about how um, staff members who are are trying to draw boundaries to support their mental health? What are some things that they can do, and maybe even if they've if they are not familiar with boundaries, you know, what does that look like in in terms of leadership? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, 
I'd absolutely say they, they have to understand themselves first. So this level of having a level of self-awareness, right? Um, even as Dr. Borchers had already said about their own mental health and then the coping mechanisms. So we're, are we exhausted? Are we working 24 seven, right? What boundaries have you created in that space? Is that family time? Is it important for me to drop off the kids in the morning? You know, if you have children, if you're having elder care, um, so I think first is like doing this review of yourself and what, what are your needs and are you meeting those? Right. But then after you meet them, like, how are you relaying that to maybe your counterparts at work? You know, so, Hey, maybe I've had a conversation with my supervisor, right. And I'm the one that's dropping off in the morning. And so it's really important that I had that morning time because we're working in athletics, which is live events and entertainment, right? So something's going to come up, right? In the afternoon, it's most likely, um, or something goes late. And so, hey, we've, we've decided for our family, I'm the one that's going to do drop off. Um, and I'm going to take that time with the kids because that might be all that you have. Okay. Um, so I think it's really important, but you have to communicate that, right? And, and be proactive with that communication, right? So first you need that internalization, but it is important. And, and here's where I always say is that, you know, your level of what you feel comfortable sharing, Right. And so, yes, I, I say bring my kids, but but sometimes as women, we're judged differently if we're bringing the kids or even men, you know, um, individuals might be judged differently. So share what you feel comfortable with sharing in that space. Right. But I'm saying be be proactive. Say, hey, I have an engagement in the morning, you know, so my start time is going to be 830 or nine. I'll be on there. OK, but so you have to know what your level of comfort is. And that really comes back to, like, how is the trust? How is the communication in your organization? What's that accountability? You know, so it's all interconnected. Right. Um, but it really takes a self-reflection first and then with the people that you're working with and what level do you feel comfortable sharing that with um, so that we can have a level of understanding. Um, but there's a few things weaved in there. So that self-awareness is emotional intelligence. Right. Having that trust that you've created, um, whether it's just with your supervisor or your department um, as a whole. Right. And then communicating that. Okay. Um, and I think sometimes that's where it gets missed is that lack of communication in there. So those would be a few of those things, Taylor. Absolutely. Thank you for that. And I want to uh, I want to pause here to remind our attendees, if you have a question or anything that comes up as we're as our panelists are sharing their expertise, please feel free to, to drop those in the Q&A section uh, along the bottom panel there. Uh, a big piece of mental health and a big piece of inclusive workspaces is social justice, is race relations, is diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I wanna shift gears here, go over to uh, to Dr. McIntosh and talk about some of the best practices. Maybe we start, you know, how can, how, how do you see Dr. McIntosh that, that diversity, equity, inclusion, social justice relate directly to mental health for staff in the workplace? Let's start there. Yeah, and again, thanks, thanks for being here. Um, I think, you know, the, the other panelists already alluded to this. Um, I think reflection is a, is a huge piece of this. As we do the work that we do, we think that social justice and, and race relations more specifically um, really needs to tap into to who you are as an individual, the things that you are passionate about, the values that you hold, um, and really an interrogation um, of that as you move forward, right? So, so folks need to, to kind of understand the context that they are within but it's really some reflection um, and thought around, you know, how do I identify? How do others identify me? Perhaps there's a disconnect between the ways in which I identify and the ways others are identifying me. And all of those things obviously can create, um, I'm not a, a mental health expert, but it can obviously create some, some sort of, of uh, dissonance and tension and, and stress and anxiety, right? So, you know, lots of times I think there is a, 
a direct connection between uh, you know persons you know sense of self uh, and the mental health challenges that they may experience on, on, on campus and certainly as well we we've seen and uh, we really encourage that as they work towards more discussions in the inclusion space etc that they should also rely on self and the values leadership qualities and traits that they think they already have right we we all don't need to be leaders in the same way i think that can also create a, a sense of stress and anxiety that that is not necessary we, we all bring something different to the table and to the equation and, and so the goal in our minds is really understanding the self you know who you are and really using the qualities the abilities the networks potentially that you already have as you try to bring about a more inclusive space and a more in inclusive environment so uh, i'll start with that okay and i'm gonna come right back to you dr mcintosh and ask what are from from your perspective and from rise's perspective what are some of the best practices you've seen you know in being able to implement everything you just said but also in being able to to implement and create inclusive workplaces as leaders yeah, I think, you know, what I just shared is, is more at an interpersonal or an individual level. Uh, as we work with organizations, we think there's a, a framework that works really well as they think about inclusive cultures or, or, or culturally competent organizations. Uh, point one for us usually is how are you understanding what your stakeholders are thinking and feeling? What are their perceptions? And, you know, you can go about that in various ways, whether it be surveys or focus groups or anything along those lines. But really having having a sense of what your, your membership is feeling is important. We, we talk about educating your organization. And again, that could be digitally, virtually, in person, you know, town halls, et cetera. Again, number of ways you can do that. But um, you know, that education is and awareness is important. Um, we believe that you need uh, holistic structures, things that can last beyond simply one individual taking action. So, you know, are there policies in place? Is there a mission statement? Are there core values that are based on inclusivity and inclusive leadership, et cetera? Those things are, are critical. And then you need spaces, I think two, two types of spaces, but they work hand in hand. You need a space where those who've traditionally been minoritized can speak up, speak out, work things through for themselves. Um, but simultaneously, you need a space where you can have what I would broadly call cross-pollination, right? So, you know, you can have the entire organization speaking to one another as you move things forward. So those, those are, I would say, are the top five things that we typically work with organizations on as they think about how they move forward collectively to create a, a more inclusive space. Absolutely. So these topics for leaders can sometimes be really scary, right? Things having the ability and, and having kind of the fortitude to create these inclusive spaces uh, to talk about mental health, to acknowledge that people are burnout and wanting to leave, to acknowledge that maybe not everybody feels uh, safe in the environment that they work in from an inclusivity standpoint. Amy, uh, what are some things, you know, from the campus perspective, uh, what are some ways that athletic directors can create space for these topics on, on campus? You know, again, I'll, I'll say you're kind of the, the coach that needs to bring all the pieces. So I don't think ADs can do this themselves. Uh, one of the things I did is I did look across our campus and I kind of restructured and reorganized 
We have a leadership institute. We had some folks that have been leaders on campus in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and we had a need to connect back to campus. So it may look different everywhere, but what I really do is look for some leaders and experts. And some of that was outside of athletics, to be quite frank, and found some people that were campus resources and then ended up hiring an individual um, that was really a leader across campus. Cause I said, you know, if that person can integrate, one will integrate back to campus even better. And two, uh, at least places I've worked, athletics is the most diverse place on campus. And athletics is a gift for having people of all walks of life and backgrounds come together. And diversity is regions of the country and we're recruiting from all over the place. So how do we have those uh, spaces where all that comes together and everybody does feel heard and included? So part of mine is relying on campus and experts outside of athletics to bring the best practices into athletics, but also that marriage that athletics usually is the most diverse place on campus for all our student athletes. And I think we can talk about diversity equity inclusion a lot, but how do we show it? And so I think the days of just saying, oh, we're doing this and we're having programming, um, we're always going to hire the best people, but there's a lot more diversity out there and you need to have a staff that is reflective of your student athlete population. And I will say um, that may not be that every woman and I will connect, but maybe it's somebody from the Northeast where I grew up and it's a young man. So I think the uh, traditional diversity equity inclusion days, I think it's evolving. And I think that's a good thing. And I think connecting with campus, I think showing through actions that you have a diverse staff from regions of the countries, backgrounds, gender, ethnicity, um, sexual orientation. And I just think, again, our job as athletic directors are we are not going to be experts in everything, but knowing there's a need and how do we bring experts to the table to get our staff and student athletes what they need and require. And I think um, it's evolving as well, and it's going to continue to evolve. One of the things at CMU is we are affiliated with a Native American tribe, and I think that's an awesome gift. And there's no reason why we can't be a leader in diversity and inclusion when we have that close relationship um, with our Saginaw Chippewa Indian tribe. So there's a lot of things that we have at CMU, I think, working for us. And those are some of the things that we're working on to get better and continue to evolve and enhance our operation. Absolutely. I think the the education piece of that and being able to rely on sometimes external sources, right, to bring in and, and provide that education is is one of the easiest and kind of right in your face answers that that you can have on campus. Uh, again, thinking about education, thinking about education for retention. Uh, retention ultimately helps the athletes, right? The more we can have consistency in staffing on campus, whether it be in coaches or administrators, the better their experience is going to be. If athletes are having to spend time getting to know a new coach every single year, getting to know a new athletic trainer every single year, a new student athlete development department every single year, their experience is going to be more focused on really networking and getting to know all these new people rather than the true athlete experience. So Dr. Borchers, I want to talk to you a little bit about inclusive environments in terms of, of um, really healthcare, inclusive environments in the training room. What can we do, you know, on the healthcare side of things uh, to help retain employees? I think, again, I talked about modeling behavior and um, student athletes are very perceptive. For example, they pick up on, you know, um, what is happening with those around them and especially those that they are spending time with every day. But I think, look, it, it's it's not a secret that in order to maintain a vibrant, engaged workforce um, and employees, that we have to look beyond the work that they do. And healthcare is by far and away, it's not even close. The most important thing to people when they think about their day-to-day, -day, you know, experiences. And listen, 
we're really comfortable as a society talking about physical health care. 80% of us would be willing to talk about those issues with someone that, you know, we're either close to or even an employee, another employee, or even our supervisor. But only 20% of us are really comfortable talking about things when it comes to our mental wellness and mental health care. We can say that we're breaking down the stigma, but we haven't gotten there yet. And as much as I appreciate personnel being part of the process, personnel doesn't solve this problem. Self-advocacy solves this problem. We know that through healthcare as well, through watching, you know, what's happened with physical healthcare. And so we have to provide employees resources that allow them to feel comfortable in a space being vulnerable when they need to be vulnerable, but also developing a skill set if they need to develop it and work on it, just like we would um, if we said we're going to open 60 minutes at lunch to go to the gym to work out. Now, that may be, we think, because of physical well-being, it may affect our mental well-being as well. The other thing I would say in this space is, is that um, we've talked to so many folks in this space, um, both employees and student-athletes, who mention how liberating it is when they're acknowledged when something has come up and they feel very vulnerable in being able to express that. And they receive not only support, but they, from the people that they're talking to, receive, you know, kind of validation that this is okay and it's normal and that, you know, that it's that we're going to support you and, and expect that. And so I think that, you know, from long hours to all of the things that, uh, you know, that a, that a coach and a, an administrator, a staff member might feel, um, it is very liberating when you know that you're in an environment where you can feel comfortable um, working through those things and addressing those, you know, those issues. If you don't feel like you're in a safe space for that, I can tell you that the number one thing that happens with employees is that they resign their position and they look for another opportunity. I mean, it, it's just it's it's just not even close. And so if they feel threatened when it comes to their health and well-being um, and they don't feel that they can, you know, um, be supported, that they're not going to be supported in that space, um, that's their number one. That's the number one thing that happens, the number one um, outcome that we have. And so um, we certainly recognize that um, that it uh, takes work, uh, but it takes um, uh, recognizing the problem. And I, I love to one of the panelists said earlier, being proactive in this space. Um being reactive in this space, just like kind of with healthcare, makes you feel like you're already kind of behind it. When you're proactive in this space, um, there's so much benefit that comes from it. So um, uh, I agree with our other panelists and and think this is something that uh, we have to address on a day-to-day basis. I think uh, proactivity, reactivity are not just things that apply to healthcare, of course. They can apply more broadly uh, from a leadership standpoint, too. And and so I want to shift to Dr. Wells, but Dr. Wells, I saw you unmute. Do you have a comment to add on? I was going to go back to um, Amy's point earlier about this integration, you know, because from, she's from the athletic side, you know, being from the academic side, Amy, I love that you and your team um, have been bridge builders. And that's something that we've used a lot at the University of South Florida and and sometimes, but it takes faculty, like we have to step up as well, too, because we're all we're all on the same team. Right. Your students are our students. Um, they're the university students. And so I love the bridge building. Right. And as faculty go and listen and it, can we help meet your needs. Right. Because that just elevates the entire institution and everyone there. Um, 
so Amy, I just wanted to make sure I said that from the academic side um, and know that at University of South Florida, we've done some of these same things, you know, working um, in the College of Business and doing organizational behavior and leadership. We've done that with our athletics department um, because we do have the resources right here in the backyard. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, touching on the uh, the proactive and the reactive, I'm going to build off of, of what you just said, Dr. Wells. What are some ways that, you know, um, athletic staff can be proactive in what they're doing, be it for their own, you know, well-being, whether it's mental health related directly, whether it has to do with an inclusive workspace, what are ways, you know, that you think that staff can be proactive versus being reactive in that environment? Yeah, I think it's, we've got to speak up, you know, um, and I think it's knowing where your resources are. Institutions, we have a wealth of knowledge, right? Um, but sometimes we don't know where it is, right? But we have to be able to ask it. For that right um i do that i share a lot with my students I'm like oh i didn't even know that but i'm like your your tuitions and your fees actually have paid for that right and so i think it's having but where is that and sometimes we are so siloed um and this isn't just at institutions organizations sometimes are siloed with their information and so it's like can we have this centralized space right do we know do we know where to go right um and maybe i don't feel comfortable again because this sometimes goes back to that trust and the communication I don't know where to go, but if we had this centralized space and I could either look for it myself or a trusted colleague that I felt could send me there. Um, so I think that's being proactive too. You know, um, the reaction is, is sometimes um, when we're waiting or say we're gonna be late on a deadline, right? Instead of being proactive and saying, hey, I'm not in the, I'm not in the emotional state right now. You know, um, I'm not gonna meet it today. How's Monday? And I think having that, and I call it feed forward instead of feedback, but you have to articulate these things, right? And it's not to say that we're not going to address this, but it's just right now, you know, either I have a priority, right? Hey, there's a game tonight. I have to be there. Or there's an emergency situation with my student, right? And so that reprioritizes things. Um, but being, in, but yet I might've had another deadline, but how do you articulate that? And how do you say, I will get to this. This is important, right? Um, but at the later date, I have other priorities at this moment. And, and that really comes back to the communication and being proactive and getting out in front of it more than anything. The word that kept coming to mind as you were just explaining that, Dr. Wells, was capacity. I think so many times athletic department staff employees reach capacity far before maybe other members of the team, maybe before their athletes, maybe they're reaching it you know, slower than, than other members of the team, so on and so forth. Uh, and so, uh, Dr. McIntosh, to you, when it comes to capacity and when it comes to our ability in athletics to create these inclusive workspaces, what do you say to athletic department staff who are already at capacity, but we're about to head into a new school year right now? It's August, right? We're about to restart things. Folks are burnt out. We've heard the great resignation. We've heard all these things. What would you say to those folks? Yeah, I think a, a couple of the, the, the panelists are already alluded to this, um, which is, you know, the, the university is, a, is, an, is an organism as a whole, right? I think there are a lot of times that we've done work um, with athletic uh, departments where they are a little bit siloed. Um, and I think that that can create a challenge, right? You know, there, there are institutions where, you know, I have separate relationships or RISE has separate relationships with both the institution on the more academic administrative side. And then we also have a relationship on the athletic side. And so one of the things that we've been, been striving to encourage and, and foster, and it's great to hear that, that CMU is doing it and, and other places certainly, um, is, is really getting folks to look 
at the entire organization and seeing where those resources exist, right? Diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, most campuses I know of have an office, have some resources dedicated towards that. They do have resources dedicated towards mental health. They do have resources around strategic planning and, and leadership. Um, they have business schools, et cetera. And so, you know, oftentimes, you know, if you are a member of a particular department or college, you don't know that those resources exist, but but most times they are there. So I think it's it's first of all finding out what exists in your backyard, so to speak, um, and being and being proactive around that. The the other piece that I think is, is terribly important is this is that I don't think the student athletes are passive recipients of any of this programming. They, you know, certainly are, are individuals who cannot adopt a butcher's point think mental health is important, are willing to prioritize it, are willing to prioritize their own mental health. And so, you know, we've seen the same in the social justice space as well. So how are you, I think, empowering them, equipping them, in some cases, removing some of the obstacles that would allow them to be better advocates um, for themselves in these spaces? Um, because that is, a, I think, a, a huge, in some cases, untapped resource as well for athletic departments, you know, coaches, in my experience, usually would like to have all the answers. That's, that's the way coaching kind of sounds like, you know, I have some knowledge and expertise and I need to pass it on to you. Um, but in many instances, I think, especially with this generation, they are more knowledgeable in, in, some, in some areas and on some topics. So how do you create a space where they feel as though they're truly partners in all of this work? I think that's, that's the key question that will help build capacity as well. This is a, a great segue. I want to uh, kick it back to to Amy. Um, so in thinking about uh, whether it's coaches, whether it's administration, but thinking about the knowledge that exists internally within an athletic department, you, you mentioned earlier, there's so many, you know, kind of people, there's so many leaders who do have knowledge that can help move an athletic department forward, who can help uh, to retain other employees and things like that. When it comes to team culture, how important uh, is team culture on campus in the day-to-day -day function of an athletic department? Yeah, I think culture is critical, right? And it's getting the right leaders in the right place that believe in the values. I mean, one of the things that we talk about is focusing on the student-athlete experience, our fan experience of our 230,000 living alums and getting them engaged to the whole university through athletics. And then the other part is being performance leaders. So we just have to be a leader in the MAC, our conference, and every day what we do. So our mental health, look at that and where are we? If we're looking at academics, um, looking at the student athlete experience. So everything that we do, we continue look to get better. And if we get to the best mark in that area, then how do we raise the bar and continue to, you know, keep escalating that? So I think um, it's all about people and it's getting the right people in place. And um, I would say when I think the challenges are that the demands of athletics, it's very visible, right? Like everybody's performance is usually in the paper. And then athletics, it's very metric for student athletes and coaches. We've looked to try to do similar in our staff, but I think part of it is to focus on what are we gonna focus on and what are we gonna do well? And how do we do that and execute and not be really a mile wide and an inch deep? How do we get you know very deep on the things that matter most? Um, but I would say for our industry, I think it is the struggle's real, the demands and expectations don't change, but the needs, um, and maybe the willingness to do the old model is just, it's changing. So we're all having to figure out 
how do we meet those needs and how do we change and how do we embrace it? And I still think it's a work in progress. So I'm always open for ideas and assistance. Absolutely. I think uh, what you just mentioned, uh, so much of what contributes to that is the huge range of generational differences that we see in athletic departments. One of the things we used to talk to our athletes about at my previous institution was this time, this four, five, six years, if you're lucky, now it's maybe seven years with COVID. Uh, this time is the only time in your life when you're consistently surrounded with people who are your exact same age. When you graduate, when you leave campus, you're automatically going into a workplace where you're going to be working with younger people, with older people, kind of across the board. And, and generational differences are not really something that we spend time as a society talking about other than, you know, millennials had a bad rap for a while and, and Gen Z, I think, is getting, getting some of that now. Um, but Dr. Wells, for you, how important are soft skills um, when it comes to, you know, employee retention and how do those play into navigating some of those generational differences mm. you know well so like the old adage of soft skills you know they truly are essential like essential skills and particularly today um because there is five generations in the workforce never be before have there been that right and and first i think it's important to kind of level set you know because there's always this talk of like hard hard skills versus soft skills and knowing that they're not competing skill sets they are actually very complementary skill sets um, and giving an example of, let's say I had, I hired someone um, that's proficient in three languages, right? Like that's a hard skill, right? But a soft skill is their, is their ability to communicate. Maybe their nonverbal is saying something that might not be matching, right? What I hear coming out of their mouth. And so that soft skill of communication is absolutely imperative, right? And so I would love to change the narrative so that we say essential skill sets, you know, um, because these soft skills are so interpersonal. And I just go back to in today's workplace and workforce, after what we've all been experiencing for the last two plus years, right, they're essential. Okay. And it goes back, I think, and all the panelists here have said, like, we've talked a lot about a social um, self-awareness, right? So this emotional intelligence, having empathy, right? Having, building this sense of belongingness, okay? Um, communicating and trust. All those things are some soft skills, right? And it not only helps the individual, right, with their own career progressions and their career satisfactions, but it's also essential for departments. They're going to be more efficient. They're going to be more collaborative, okay, more productive um, with those soft skills and just have a level understanding. Like now that I care about Dr. McIntosh, I might know more about him. Like how much more am I willing to give, right? Whether it's for him as an individual. Um, or for our organization to lift up that organization. So soft skills are absolutely essential today. Absolutely. Uh, so, Go ahead. Sorry, if you, don't, if you don't mind me just, just piggybacking yeah. off of that, I, I would say that what is striking to me um, is, you know, what Dr. Wells is saying there. You know, I, I, I kind of consider them socio-emotional skills. I hope Dr. Wells, that, that, that too passes your, um, your scrutiny. Um, but as we do work around inclusion, it's, it's those skills we're trying to build. You know, I, you know, we often say to folks, you know, it's not it's not more important being able to define bias as being able to, to utilize a skill of perspective taking. Right. So it, it's both things that to her point that are necessary and they're important in the social justice and inclusion space as well. You, if you have leaders who are who demonstrate inclusive leadership, who are able to create psychologically safe environments, um, then I think, you know, you, you do have a, a department, a, an organization, a university that is more 
efficient and more effective. So yeah, I'd absolutely um, say that it's not just important in some of the, um, the more, um, I guess, I, I don't know what the word is, but, but let me say it another way. It is important in inclusion and in diversity and equity as well. I just wanted to underscore that, so thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so retention, as as we're talking about retention, we've talked about kind of all these things that that weave into it. Um, retention can sometimes be uh, scary is not the right word, but that's the word that's coming to mind. It can be a scary word. I think right now in the in again the Great Resignation, we're hearing a lot about burnout. Employee retention is not something that comes easily, but I would say there are other things that we retain in life that are simple, right? Like how do you retain your friends if you're a leader? How do you retain your employees in the same way? How do you retain your family? Hopefully, you, you know, uh, getting along at at family dinners and family functions and things like that. And so I'm wondering if, you know, if there are ways that we can start to talk about it from an education perspective that makes retention a little bit less scary and makes it more of a, a goal that we're trying to achieve. And so, Dr. Borchers, I want to ask you, in your experience, what kind of things can give, you know, athletic departments uh, an advantage in employee recruitment, engagement and retention? And you can answer that, whether it's specifically to, you know, athletics, uh, sports medicine, athletic trainers, things like that, or if you want to go more broad open to hearing your perspective on that as well. Well, I think you brought up specifically athletic trainers and and staff. There's a true crisis in, uh, in being able to recruit and retain staff in all healthcare fields, but in athletic training um, who have been the primary healthcare providers for collegiate athletes, um, it's a true crisis. Um, positions that used to have 60 applicants have three. Um, some positions have none. Um, and and look, I, I think that we have to go back to some of the generational differences as well that were spoken about. And I think this is true throughout all um, you know departments, organizations, as what we've heard here today. Um, the generation, certainly Gen Z, um, is willing to value things that are much different than what we would have valued when we were their age. And that is now, you know, as we think about um, in athletics valuing you know the ability to maintain from my perspective your ability to be well to be healthy um, to maintain you know your sense of um, equilibrium so to speak is more important than you know what we might have looked at 20 years ago as being a quote-unquote career opportunity but that's not unique to athletics it's true in healthcare it's true in corporate America what we are struggling with is that, as was mentioned earlier, I think um, I think Amy mentioned it, is that um, it's difficult to pry away from what uh, have been traditional methods and you know structures and those sorts of things, the, the kind of way we do business, um, to think about things differently and how we can accomplish things differently. And I do want to make you know just you know we we talked about uh, Dr. McIntosh mentioned earlier. Um, connecting, you know, with your constituents. And in this case, it's student athletes. And in our world, it's patients. If you don't listen to them, you become disconnected from, you know, from what they feel is important and what their goals are. And it makes your job more difficult um, and sometimes infinitely more difficult. Um, I'll give you an example. This generation, Gen Z, has absolutely no appetite to be prescribed to. They don't want to be told that your experience means something and that if you tell them what to do, um, that they will just accept it and go model it and do it. 
They want to be engaged in a process. They want to feel like they are part of the process and they want to understand why they're doing what they're doing. And I can tell you this, if you look, for example, in the NFL, the average age of the head coach has dropped significantly over the last five years. And why is that? Because it's been very difficult for head coaches that were in a different generation to be able to relate to today's athlete. But where you think, oh, wow, how could you hire a 35 or 37-year-old to be the head coach of a National Football League team? It's because they get the players that are coming out now, which is so different than the generation before. All of that to say is we know in healthcare, if we don't understand our patients, it doesn't matter how smart we are. It doesn't matter what our interventions are. It doesn't matter what we tell someone to do. They're unlikely to do it if they don't feel engaged with the people that they're you know, um, connecting with in that uh, environment. And so I think in healthcare and athletics, it's no different, right? Specifically to athletic trainers. Um, but I think we're seeing that more and more, you know, as it, as you mentioned, kind of broadens over the whole um, industry. And I do think these are challenging times. I think there is a lot of transformation and evolution going on as we think about collegiate athletics. And nobody knows that better than, you know, our athletic director that's on here today. The things that they have to think about in athletics now are so different than what we thought about 25, 30 years ago, you know, when I was a collegiate athlete. Um, and so I think there's real challenges, but we have to be careful not to put those things in little boxes and act like they don't affect each other. They do. Um, and so I just think having that viewpoint, um, when we look at transformational leaders from other industries, for example, there's some really good lessons that we could take from there um, that uh, um, maybe in the past have seemed kind of like on the fringe. But I think if we really look at these things, um, whether it's healthcare, whether it's technology, um, some people have really been ahead of their time and thinking about uh, even the military is now breaking out of their traditional way of thinking about how they've done things and able to engage a younger generation of their quote unquote workforce. Um, so um, all that to say is uh, I think we've got challenges ahead, but great opportunity because um, uh, there's great opportunity to help shape, you know, a, a new um, continuum for student athletes as they begin this experience. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Uh, you get the sense uh, being in or around college athletics right now that there is a new era dawning, right, with all the things that that are happening. Amy, I'm curious uh, from your perspective how you've experienced kind of exactly what Dr. Borchers just described in terms of, you know, differences in, in generation uh, across campus, differences in generation really within your athletic department whether it be specifically to coaches, other administration. I know I've been at several institutions where somebody had been there 30 years and, and that's not super uncommon. So I'm curious to know how you've experienced that from, from your role. Yeah, I think it's changed dramatically. Even I hear coaches say in the last five years and you know some of it probably is the pandemic that we had that changed everything. And I think changing the student athlete and the employee front. Um, it's dynamic, it's daily. Um, and I think, like I said, in the AD chair, you're never going to have all the answers we're servicing at our institution, you know, over about 400 student athletes and 17 programs and coaches and assistant coaches and support staff. So I think we just have to listen and try to get the team members together and be nimble. And I, like I said, did change the structure recently to bring in some people that I think really connect well with student athletes and they can be heard and then we can follow through. And we're starting to build up our HR team and try to do the same thing with staff. And I don't think anybody has all the answers, but I think we need receptacles to take the questions and concerns 
and then take those specific issues and then work uh, to put solutions in place. And I, I think that will be maybe for a little while. I don't think there's, you finish this answer and it's stagnant. I think it's, you know, ever evolving and dynamic. It has been, but it seems like the complexity, the magnitude and um, the time that's changing so rapidly. And maybe it's with the five generations in the workforce and it's hard to get it one size fits all. And then it's hard with your infrastructure to make everybody happy, but that's what we have. And so that's what we have to try to do to the best of our ability. Absolutely. There's no, uh, there's no cookie cutter fix. If anything has become obvious in the last few months, it's definitely that. And Dr. Wells, I see you unmuted. Yeah, I think it's really important that as organizations, and this is all, I know sport focus, but we really have to think about the employee life cycle, right? And people more now than ever, they're more empowered. I think as Dr. McIntosh had even said, before they're more empowered, but they're more connected, you know, and more engaged. And so it's like, how do we keep that? Knowing all those things, if we're thinking about the employee life cycle, because there's, there's also a business component to this with all this constant turnover, that's a cost for every employee that you lose. And, and not just a financial cost, a cultural cost, a social cost, as you talked about earlier, Taylor, like that trust to build over the time with this constant cycling. And so if we do look at an employee's life cycle, like how do we keep them engaged? How are we nurturing? You know, and some people don't like that word nurturing our talent, but right now our talent does need to be nurtured, right? And we can say investing in our talent, but as people, right, within their, in their employee life cycle at, at your organization. So I think that's really important for all organizations to be thinking about today. Yeah, absolutely. The the nurture your mention of the word nurturing, I think is really interesting because again, just like retention, just like some of these other topics we've discussed, it can be a, a word, you know, that's again, scary is not the right word, but there's definitely a stigma that surrounds, you know, nurturing that it tends to be maybe the softer side of of athletics. But I think uh, maybe as as society in general right now, we could all use a little bit more softness than than what we've got. So we're coming up on on time here. And what I would love to do in these last five minutes is kind of just go around the horn. Uh, obviously, today's webinar was was titled Education for Retention. And so if there's one thing uh, that each of you would want leaders to know right now as it relates to professional development, as it relates to retaining your employees, what would that be? And Dr. Wells, since we left off with you, we'll start off with you as well. Need to listen and ask your employees, right? What do they want? How do they want to be engaged, right? Like the what and the how are important, but keep that engagement is really important. I'm going to pass it to Dr. McIntosh. <laughs> uh, thank you. Yeah, I, I think you know, specifically in, in the lane, I guess, um, that, that I do work in, I think there is a, a focus more on diversity sometimes than there is on inclusion. And I would even go so far as to say belonging. If you create a, an environment where people feel like they belong and people feel like they're included and respected, then your retention issues, I think, get cut in half. Your search issues get cut in half because people are going to want to be a part of your organization and they're going to want to remain in that organization. If, if I'm in a space where I think I am truly self-actualizing, um, it's, it's an environment and a space I'm going to want to remain in. So I think that's, that's the goal. The goal has to be belonging and inclusion and not simply diversity. Well, I can go next, Taylor, I think, uh, and finish up with Amy. That's probably most appropriate. 
I really think that we have to allow um, employees in this day and age, and especially in athletics, but really everywhere to create self-advocacy for themselves. I think that um, we have to recognize that um, uh, being able to develop and feeling like you're um, empowered uh, to um, explore these issues and to create awareness and wellness for yourself is um, extremely important. Um, and I define that by talking about holistic care. Um, that you can't just try to silo that off and say, oh, well, if you have this problem, this is what you do. Or if you have this problem, this is where you go. Um, because it all affects, you know, everything that we do. And if we take that approach, I think what we're going to begin to find is, is that employees, along with other folks, are more engaged. Um, they're more committed. Um, they're more efficient. But they're happier. And they feel that they have, a, you know, um, a wellness that allows them um, uh, to perform better. When they don't, as we know with everything else, when you don't feel well, um, your productivity suffers. And, and so that self-advocacy and the ability to engage that for yourself is just super important. Well, and I just appreciate being a part of this panel. I really said I was here to listen. This is, you know, ever evolving. So this expertise is helpful. Um, knowing how important culture is, I did hire somebody that worked at Disney to try to help make sure that they're focused on kind of our culture and kind of say kind of the culture keeper and asking. Um, but I will say it is a challenge. And I know we're feeling it as an industry. We feel it where I am at Central Michigan University. And also looking at, you know, you want to retain employees, but if you're growing, developing, and people are going on to opportunities that they're even better, and we've had that too, um, looking at what is the right balance. It's a new day. And so we want to do right by our employees, right by our university. And I think sometimes some people moving on because they grew and developed and we don't have that opportunity for them there is also back in a compliment. So we're all looking for the balance to the point of how is this best for the student athletes? Um, how are we retaining and how are we growing? And some people will leave. So how do you manage those transitions to make yourself even better and bring in people with different experiences to elevate uh, what we offer for our student athletes in our university at Central Michigan University? Absolutely. Well, I want to wrap up here with a minute to spare uh, by saying thanks to each of you for joining us today. Uh, particularly excited. We, we announced this morning for those who are here right now, uh, if you haven't seen yet, we just announced a professional development suite through Game Plan. Really excited to have uh, Yuska, to have Rise and Wells Quest on board as three key content partnerships for that program. Uh, and excited, uh, Amy, that you were able to join us as well today and, and share your perspectives from the campus seat as well. So thanks to the four of you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.